to the September 22nd edition of Global Dialogue, the International Affairs Speakers Program of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. I'm Patrick Ryan. This evening, we welcome David Rundell, author of a new book, Vision or Mirage, Saudi Arabia at a Crossroads. David, welcome and uh, thank you for joining us from Dubai at the ungentle hour of 4 a.m. Good to have you with us. It's a pleasure uh, to be here. Pleasure great, to be here. Great. Uh, before we start, allow me to share uh, some uh, uh, program information be before we get into our conversation with uh, David Rundell. Um, I just would like to make sure that uh, you all are familiar with our uh, election 2020 program uh, that we have uh, started a couple of weeks ago. It's uh, our effort to help inform uh, voters about uh, the critical issues uh, that they should know about before heading for the polls. Uh, we've uh, had a couple of episodes on uh, China, North Korea, Russia, Afghanistan, and uh, those are all uh, archived on our youtube.com slash TNWAC archives. So you can see those uh, as well as uh, the uh, programs that we have coming in uh, in coming weeks. This week we'll be talking about global issues and October 1st uh, we'll be talking uh, about uh, the Middle East uh, October 15th, uh, we have a, a great panel with uh, John Kornblum, former ambassador to Germany, and uh, Ambassador Thomas Pickering on America's Place in the World, and then a second edition of America's Place in the World uh, with Ms. Uh, Jessica Tuckman Matthews and another guest uh, to be announced. Uh, so they will be um, along in coming weeks as we uh, all turn towards preparation for the elections. If you like those programs and uh, what we're doing at the World Affairs Council, I'll just remind you that we're a nonprofit organization, we're an educational charity, and we appreciate uh, your support through memberships or gifts. And you can visit our website, tnwac.org, and find out more about giving. I'd uh, also like to thank uh, Steve Barndollar and Sarah Jones, uh, two members of our audience tonight, for your donations when registering this evening. Your gift will be helpful as we start our education outreach academic year of the WorldQuest High School Education Program, named in honor of Ann Smedinghoff, an American diplomat who was lost in the line of duty in Afghanistan. David Rundell served as American diplomat for 30 years, 15 of which were spent in Saudi Arabia. He worked at the embassy in Riyadh, as well as the consulates in Jeddah and Dharan. His assignments included chief of mission, deputy chief of mission, political counselor, economic counselor, and counselor, commercial counselor. A unique record for an American diplomat, not only in Saudi Arabia, but in any country. He helped negotiate Saudi entry into the World Trade Organization. He conceived and helped implement the Joint Commission for Critical Infrastructure Protection, which has strengthened Saudi-American relations, as well as global energy security. He has won numerous awards for his analysis and reporting from Saudi Arabia, including four superior honor awards and the Cox Award given each year to the Foreign Service officer who has made the greatest contribution to American trade policy. After leaving the State Department in 2010, David worked as a business strategy consultant that included work with the Saudi Ministry of Commerce, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Saudi Aramco, the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, and the Saudi Arabian General Investment Agency. For the past five years, David has been a partner in Arab, Arabia Analytica, a consulting firm based in New York, Washington, and Dubai. David has been actively involved in the production of oil and gas in the Permian Basin of West Texas and New Mexico for over 30 years. 
He holds a BA cum laude in economics from Colgate University and an MPhil in Middle East studies from Oxford University. He lives in London and Dubai with his wife and daughter. Again, David, thank you for joining us for a conversation on Saudi Arabia. Well, you're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. David, uh, as- sorry, I'm uh, sorry, I can't be there and visit Nashville in person. I would have enjoyed that. Well, we'll, uh, we'll keep the lights on here in Nashville and, and look forward to you coming uh, when, when we get back to a, a new normal. Uh, we're uh, looking forward to becoming a hospitality city again. Um, David, let's, uh, let's start with uh, your opening on, on the book. Uh, a terrific uh, read. You've got one on your shelf there. Mine is, uh, is the, uh, the Kindle version, but uh, it uh, is a great read. I've uh, not made it all the way through yet. But I'm looking forward to getting into the rest of the book. It's yeah, uh, so it far. There's, there's the old. There it is. The smiling face of Mohammed bin Salman is on the cover. Although it's a bit misleading because the book is not really about Mohammed bin Salman. But uh, in any event, would you? I, I think uh, people usually like to know why did you write this book? Um, and to begin with, I wrote the book really for my colleagues at the American Embassy to help them understand how Saudi Arabia worked. There were history books on Saudi Arabia, but there was not really a book that explained how this very unusual place operated. And I'll just give you some examples of that. Really, when I was the political counselor, I would have to advise the young junior officers that they should throw their political science book out of the window and go buy a history book because they really should go read about how Henry VIII ran England. And if they could understand how Tudor England operated, they'd understand how the Saudi monarchy worked. And likewise, in the economic section, you'd be able to, you'd really have to tell people that the um, macroeconomics textbook they had wasn't much use in a country that didn't have a fiscal policy because they didn't have taxes, or they had a fiscal policy, but they don't have taxes, or they, their monetary policy was based on the what the Federal Reserve would do because their currency is tied to the dollar. So these are just a couple of examples about how politically and economically, and when I say their currency is tied to the dollar, that means that, as I said, the interest rates are really set in America. So their monetary policy, their fiscal policy, their political system are all quite different than in most places. Uh, likewise, their history is quite different. Uh, religion still plays a very important role in their society. So all of those things, um, prompted me to write a book that would help my colleagues uh, to understand it, how it, how it was established and how it operated, and also um, all the changes that are taking place there now. And, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, um, um, I'll, I'll let you continue describing the book and then we'll get into some questions here. Okay, well, um, well, I think the thing that one of the things that people are most interested in are the changes that are taking place in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and they are many and, and significant. And many of those changes are not a mirage. Um, they, are, they are real. And there are political changes, there are social changes, and there are economic changes. Um, the most obvious to most people are the social changes particularly those that relate to gender. Most people know that uh, women could not drive in Saudi Arabia, but now uh, they can, but that's really only the tip of the iceberg. There are a lot of other things that relate to gender equality that have changed quite significantly and quite dramatically. Uh, for example, there is something there called the guardianship regulations, and these were rules that 
made a woman require the written permission of her guardian, who was usually her husband or her father, to do a whole range of things, from open a bank account, to open a business, to travel, to put your child in school, to even have a cesarean delivery. Um, those regulations have largely been dismantled. It wasn't just one law that you could just change. There were a whole series of them, but most of them have gone away. Along with that, uh, the ability of women to work in uh, most professions. Again, that was something that uh, a few years ago, women could not be engineers or geologists. Uh, there were large numbers of jobs they could do, uh, could not do. And that's changing very substantially and very quickly. I'll just give you some numbers there. I don't like to throw out numbers too often, but this is an important one to remember that the labor force participation rate for Saudi women five years ago was 20%. And that means how, what percentage of the women are actually working. So it was 20%. Now, five years later, it's 30%. So it increased by, five, by 50% in five years. That's dramatic. Um, now, the flip side of that is that it's now 30%. And in the United States, it's 60%. So they still have a long ways to go. Uh, but they are going in the right direction and they're going there quite quickly. And uh, again, another factoid, if you will, is last year, the World Bank gives out a, a measure for which country improved the role of women in business and legal, legal role of women in business in the world, which countries improved the most. And Saudi Arabia was ranked at the top last year. Again, they had a long ways to go uh, and they still have a long ways to go, but they're moving in the right direction uh, for the relation with regards to gender equality. Um, but the social changes are, go beyond just um, gender. There's a lot of other things that have happened. The place, um, the religious police, which everyone again had heard about, I think most people anyway, they, they have largely been taken off the street. Um, movie theaters have been opened for the first time in 40 years. Sporting events now allow women in. Um, there are now rock concerts, uh, magic shows, things which you wouldn't have imagined. Music is heard in restaurants and men and women who aren't married can sit in a restaurant together. Um, all of those are dramatic changes uh, from the Saudi Arabia that I knew for many years and which existed really until five years ago. So a lot of social change, um, very, very rapid social change. And I have to say quite the opposite of what I think is gonna happen in a lot of other I'll give you an example. I mean, Saudi Arabia is moving forward on social change, and I would imagine that within not very long, the Afghan people are going to have their system going backwards once the Taliban um, recover, whatever you want to call it, get some more power back. Uh, I think things right. in Afghanistan are actually going to go backwards. So um, anyway, I think Saudi Arabia is moving in the right direction there. Um, David, can you... Can you uh Drop back a little bit in time, and, and your experience in the kingdom, uh, as you noted, is, is radically different than what the current situation is. But tell us just a little bit, uh, help, help our uh, viewers understand what the, uh, what the nature of the relationship is between the United States and Saudi Arabia has developed over the decades, and why that seems to be so important to policymakers and decision makers now as, as we look at the current environment. Well, um, Saudi Arabia has been a partner of the United States in a number of fronts for 70 years. Um, it's just another factoid, but really, they're really the only um, Arab country that at one point in time didn't flirt with or act actively side with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. They were really quite um, a constant supporter 
uh, in our struggle with the Soviet Union, our struggle against communism, which is now history, but which was very important for a long time. Um, the, first, the first reason that people consider Saudi Arabia important is, is oil. So I think it's important to talk about that for a moment. Um, Saudi Arabia is a very large exporter of oil and they produce some of the least expensive, most easily transportable oil in the world and some of the least expensive to produce. But they are important not because they produce a lot of oil, but because they maintain a surplus capacity that they can turn on and turn off to adjust to the market's needs. In other words, they're something of the central bank of energy, and they use that to help stabilize markets. And they do that not because they particularly um, like us, but because it's in their own interest to do so. They want oil to remain a major part of the global energy mix for a long time. They have a lot of oil, they want it to be used. They understand that very high oil prices or very unstable oil prices make oil unattractive. Uh, if the oil price gets too high, everybody wants to get an electric car, or they go and put the third layer of insulation in their attic, or they start drilling for oil in the Arctic. Uh, so if oil gets too expensive, that's uh, bad news for them. So they don't really want it to get too high. In that sense, they differ from a lot of the OPEC members who are have much more limited reserves and want uh, the highest price and make as much money as fast as they can. And that's not really been the Saudi um, model. So uh, with this idea in mind, they maintain about, most of the time, about 2 million barrels of, of surplus capacity a day. 2 million barrels a day of surplus capacity. And that is something that no other country and no other oil company would do because it costs a lot of money. It is a political decision, not a commercial decision. Uh, if, the, if Exxon did that, their stockholders would be very unhappy. But the Saudis maintain this buffer and they use it. They use it if there's a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico, if there's a strike in Venezuela. Uh, and quite frankly, they use it when the United States decides to put sanctions on somebody. If the United States decides to tell Iran that you're not gonna sell any more oil, and two million barrels or half a million barrels, whatever it is that time, go off the market. Um, all of us would see a, a price spike, except that the Saudis have the ability to step in. Uh, and so in any event, they're, they're, they remain important in the oil markets. And I would just give you some examples there is that um, in 2018, President President Trump tweeted, you know, that the oil prices were too high. Um, I'm not saying that the OPEC jumps when he tells them to, but it is true that they did um, increase production and prices uh, came down. And uh, when the March COVID uh, pandemic was uh, destroying the American oil industry really, re really very quickly, um, and we actually wanted prices to go back up, uh, the president didn't call Russia, he didn't call Iran, he called the Saudis, and they made some adjustments and prices began to stabilize. So they remain very important to global oil markets. And the final thing to say about that is that some people think now that the, because the United States, because of the fracking revolution, uh, that we are independent from global energy supplies. That's not the case. We, um, it's not 
totally the case. And we're perhaps less dependent than we were on foreign oil, but oil is still traded at a, on a global market and the price of oil is global. And unless we're going to stop all exports from the United States, we will end up paying the same price as everybody else. And if, even if we did stop our own exports and kept the price low here, a high price amongst our trading partners would uh, damage their economies and thus our economy because we trade with them. So that's the oil story. Um, Let me I think ask you, also... uh, if, if I could, uh, yep. the King, King Salman, is, uh, his official title is custodian of the two holy mosques. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the Saudi Arabia centrality in the, in the Muslim world? and in uh, the Arab League, and uh, also touch on uh, their, their role in the regional security that the United States has uh, found them to be a partner in? Well, um, another reason that they're important is because they are a leader. I wouldn't say they are the leader, but they are an important leader in both the Arab and the Muslim world. Uh, and that's important because they control Mecca. Uh, they control what is said in Mecca. And in recent years, the speeches that come out from Mecca uh, every day, which are listened to by billions of people around the world very attentively, um, have been very moderate and um, increasing. I mean, really, in the last 20 years, they have preached repeatedly against terrorism, against suicide bombings, against giving charitable donations to questionable organizations. All this has been, been helpful to our war, our, our counterterrorism activities. Um, it, this leadership role that they have in the Arab world also plays a part in our efforts to resolve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Um, the Saudis are a status quo power. They have a lot to lose. They like things the way they are. Um, they don't like things that rock the boat, whether that is Arab nationalism brought to us by Nasser, whether that is jihad brought to us by bin Laden, uh, they, whether it's the Arab Spring for that matter. Uh, they don't like things that rock the boat, and the Arab-Israeli conflict is one of those. Um, now, over 20 years ago, they led an effort to change the Arab position from one of total rejection to Israel to one that would accept Israel under certain conditions. And that was, at the time, a very um, forward-leaning uh, agenda, which they had to take political risks to implement. And that is today still the Arab consensus. So they've been helpful in that. Um, I think it goes without too much speculation that they were helpful in the, the agreement that was just reached between the UAE and Bahrain and Israel, and that had they protested loudly or disapproved of that, certainly in the case of Bahrain, uh, it probably would not have happened. Um, they're slowly moving towards their own accommodation with Israel. So, I mean, these are just some of the other things that they have been helpful to us in. I mean, they were very helpful to us in the Operation Desert Storm, uh, and they remain helpful to us in, the, as I say, in counterterrorism and in stabilizing the region in general. Uh, I'm gonna uh, work in a couple of questions here, David, as we go along. Uh, sure. One of the comments you made was about uh, currency, and, and Huda uh, asks, uh, you said that the currency was tied to the dollar, but uh, she thinks uh, it may be correct to say that it was tied to the gold standard. No, it's tied to the dollar. The yeah. Saudi real is tied to the dollar. It has been for 30 years. Uh, it's not tied to gold. Okay. 
And, and may have been tied to gold if you argue. No, I, I mean, it, well, there was a time when the United when our currency was tied to gold, but no, their currency is tied to the dollar. Three point seven five reals to a dollar. Yeah, has uh, been for years. Let's talk a little bit more about the the uh, economic status of Saudi Arabia. They remember the G twenty and and as you were, uh, as I noted, you were key to their accession in the WTO. Talk a little bit about their status in the uh, in the world as a G twenty member and uh, uh, you know the the energy stability that they provide, but uh, moreover, what the impact is in the region uh, of Saudi Arabia economically. Well, economically, uh, they're going through a difficult time right now. And as you say, they are a member of the G20. They're one of the largest economies in the, um, in the world. I mean, interestingly, they're, they're for sure the only monarchy in the only real monarchy in the um, G20. And the fracking revolution disrupted their economic model very substantially. It... Um, Basically, the fracking revolution shifted the supply curve out for oil, and that means that the price is not going to be $100 a barrel anytime soon, and that they are going to have to learn to live with the lower oil prices, and they're going to have to um, live probably with, in fact, almost certainly with a, with a smaller market share. So this forced them to reevaluate the economic model that they'd been using, and, and uh, they came up with something called Vision 2030 which is really, Vision 2030 is both a social and an economic model, but it's mostly economic. And it has really three goals. It want, they want to balance their budget. They want to um, diversify their economy and they want to create jobs for Saudis. And they have made quite substantial progress in all of those areas. Um, something that they did, which they'd never done before, was fiscal reform uh, in the sense that they actually did start um, reducing subsidies and implementing taxes. So that's changed. That's, that's a real change. It's not a mirage. Uh, it really has happened. Uh, they've started to privatize things. Everyone's heard about the privatization of Aramco, but that's not the only thing that has been or will be privatized. Um, they have passed a large number of new laws, uh, new mortgage laws, which make it possible for people to get houses, new bankruptcy laws, um, new enforcement laws, which um, that what used to be difficult to enforce judgments from the court. That's not so true anymore. So uh, they're reforming their economy, but they have a lot of they have a lot of headwinds. It's not easy to diversify an economy away from oil when an oil is so big a part of their economy. Uh, it's not easy to do any of this when COVID is smashing uh, much of their their economy. They were, they were trying to diversify into tourism. That was an effort that it was looked like it was going to work, but it's obviously had a big setback now. Um, but they're, they're making some significant reforms in their economy. And, um, and one which I think um, often goes unnoticed, and I, 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 would, I think it's important to mention this one, is that anti-corruption in Saudi Arabia is real. Um, King Salman has been an opponent of corruption for a long time. When he was governor of Riyadh, he didn't have the power to run the whole country, but he ran uh, his city in a much cleaner way than most. And he has cracked down, not just on large people in, that you hear about in the Ritz, but also on small and medium bureaucrats who are being who have been corrupt. So there has been a real change in the enforcement of anti-corruption laws, and perhaps more importantly, um, 
corruption was sort of socially acceptable in Saudi Arabia. People knew that it went on and they still invited you to their party if they knew you were someone who had been corrupt. Uh, that's changing. It's less, less, less so today. So um, there, are, there are some pretty substantial economic changes going on. Um, and and the, I think the G20 uh, meeting will go on. I think it will happen uh, in uh, November. Um, they're planning for it. They're inviting people. And I think, it, I think it will be probably the first major summit since COVID broke out. David, um, you referred to the Ritz there, and, and in your book you talked about the, some of the challenges of, uh, of the changes afoot, the uh, uh, business elites and technocrats and others who, and, and clerical uh, uh, sector. Uh, talk a little bit about, tell us what the Ritz was, and uh, tell us a little bit about some of the pushback to this dramatic change that, uh, that you talk about in your book. Well, um, I think the first thing to say is that the Ritz was not really a power grab. None of the people that were thrown in the Ritz were really a threat to the king or the crown prince. By the time they did this, they had already solidified power. Uh, you could argue if they'd done it sooner, it might have. It, you could have said it was a power grab. But by the time they did it, um, they had consolidated power. And you could argue that they waited to do it until they had consolidated power. Um, most of the people that were in the Ritz were well known to have done things that were commonplace in Saudi Arabia at the time, but corrupt by most global standards. Uh, and so the effort was to recoup some of these funds and to set an example that this shouldn't happen again. Um, the king had been keeping a list for a long time. The, some of the people that went in the Ritz had committed their crimes, if you want to call them that, um, before Mohammed bin Salman was even born. So this, this has been going on. This has been getting this list ready for a long time. Uh, and just, just to clarify for, uh, for viewers who may not know, uh, the Ritz uh, incident was the uh, detention of senior princes and others in, in uh, the Ritz-Carlton in, in Riyadh. That's right. Um, you know, these people were put in detention, if you will, in, in a five-star hotel where they um, was used as a jail. I mean, they used a five-star hotel as a, as a jail to put these people in for several months in some cases. And these people um, were shown evidence of... Uh, of what they had done. And in most cases, they made some kind of an agreement to pay back some of the money of what they um, allegedly had taken. Uh, the, the, the process was not transparent. Um, and that's a problem. That is a problem the Saudis face. They're not, they're not transparent um, about how these things work or what the charges were or how, who got off and who didn't or how much people paid. That all remains very opaque. Um, I know some of it, not all of it. Um, but I think one thing that, um, and the way you find out really is by talking to people. There was never any published list, but if you talk to enough people, you sort of piece it together. People know what happened to X and then another person knows what happened to Y. So um, one thing that happened though was something that's not usually associated with Saudi Arabia, that is uh, land reform. Now, when you talk about land reform, you're usually thinking of South America or maybe Egypt. Um, but, but land reform was an issue in Saudi Arabia. Um, 
housing is very expensive in Saudi Arabia and the relationship between the actual real estate and the building on it for most houses in Saudi Arabia is reversed to what it is in America. In America, maybe a third of the land at the most, a third of the value of the whole property is the land in most cases and the, the house is the 70%. And in Saudi Arabia, those figures are reversed. The house is actually worth less than the land. And the reason for that is twofold. One, building costs are cheap, but two, the land is very expensive because it's controlled by a very few people. Um, and they dribble it out in ways that uh, keep it expensive. So housing was a real problem. And it, King Abdullah um, set about to fix this. He said, okay, I'm gonna make a housing ministry and I'm gonna give them a lot of money and they can go build houses for people. Well, the housing ministry didn't get very far because they couldn't find any land except way out in the countryside where nobody wanted to live. So then the king said, okay, I'm gonna make a new law. And, and another, I should have said, one of the reasons this happens is because there was no tax on land. So you could own this piece of land in, right in downtown Riyadh, essentially on Park Avenue in New York, and just keep it vacant. You would see boarded up shacks on the main streets of Riyadh because nobody, the people were just using it as an investment waiting for some year in the future, it would be more valuable than it is today. So the king said, okay, we're gonna put a tax on this unused land. So he did. And then people began to find ways around it. They said, oh, uh, well, this is not unused land. I just built a little shack here. So now it's actually a usable land or they broke it up into tiny plots that were beneath the limit of his law. So his law didn't do much good. So when King Salman came along, he uh, said, well, I'm done playing games. So the reality is that the Saudi government claims that they confiscated $100 billion worth of assets at the Ritz. That's their number. Uh, I've talked to the people who came up with it. I know where they, how they got it. Um, not, most of that land is not, most of that money is not cash. It's not stocks. It's not buildings in Las Vegas or somewhere, which they did get. They got some, some of that. Um, but most of it was raw land in Jeddah and Riyadh. Uh, and they did take over half the raw land in Jeddah and Riyadh. And they're now distributing it uh, to people for houses, which is part of the new mortgage law. So that was, a, so you, I'm saying all this to get to the final point that the episode of the Rich Carlton was extremely popular in Saudi Arabia, extremely popular. Uh, wasn't popular for the people who got put in the Ritz, but the average Saudi uh, said, you know, this should have happened a long time ago. Finally, somebody did it. Uh, and now I'm getting a lot for my house. So um, it was a very popular move uh, domestically. Well, so that, I think that's about it. Well, I, that's probably more than you want to know about the Ritz. Well, we now know about shacks in, in Riyadh, and that's, yeah. uh, but I, I think that's a telling story about how, uh, how things go uh, in the kingdom, which is sometimes, as, as you mentioned, not always a transparent place. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about uh, Vision 2030. Um, the, uh, the, the prospects of success depend a lot on the, the cost of a barrel of oil. Well, the idea is to, diversify, right. is to diversify um, the sources of, of revenue, knowing that at some point oil will, 
uh, maybe not the exact end of the age of oil, but uh, it, it may be less of an important commodity than it than it has been in the past. But this this we shall see. But what uh, what do you uh, imagine? And and this this question comes from Jim Shepard. Um, he notes that uh, Saudi Arabia's budget needs an oil price of seventy to eighty dollars uh, a barrel to be balanced. And uh, he asks, what oil price assumption does the Vision Twenty Thirty plan assume? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would. I guess the implication there is is uh, and and will you know what what's the likelihood it's going to get there? And okay, um, successful. The first point is that Saudi Arabia is attempting to diversify away from oil, but it will always remain heavily involved in oil as long as oil is being produced. And it's, it's, it's going to remain an export, an exporter of raw materials. That is, this, Canada is one, Australia is one, South Africa is one. There's nothing inherently wrong with that as long as you have something a little, you diversify a bit. So they are not gonna remove oil from their mix, but they're going to reduce its emphasis. Um, second point I would make is that um, I don't think oil is going to go away anytime soon. It, it is much less important in the West. Our GDP growth has to a considerable extent disconnected from oil, but that's not really true in places like India uh, or China where demand is still growing. And I think if you, I, if you go to India, you'll see that uh, there are a lot of people who don't even have a car and it's gonna be a long time before they can afford a Tesla. So um, I think that the demand for oil, which is now principally for motor transportation is in the rest of the world is gonna to continue to grow. Um, I think as long as oil continues to grow, the probably the last drop of producible oil in the world uh, is going to be um, produced in Saudi Arabia because their production costs are so much lower than everybody else. And the final general comment I would make is that um, I have long questioned, and I've had many conversations about this, that that $70 barrel uh, number is, um, is misleading. Newspapers like to use it. Uh, even the World Bank uses it sometimes. But um, the truth is what you're really talking about is revenues. And the revenue is a, is a product. The revenue is a product not only of the price, but of the number of barrels you're producing. So you, when you say, what is the price, you've got to also tell me how much are you producing. Uh, and they never do that. Um, the Saudis have produced you know, everything from sometimes they bring, the, bring, bring it down in the 80s. They took it down to 2 million barrels a day. And now it's 10 million barrels a day. Or actually, it's more like nine right now. But, um, and they have the capacity when they want you to go to 12. 12 and a half. So how much they're producing is just as much, just as important as the price. Um, and the other problem I have with that number is that um, it includes capital expenditures, which um, are discretionary. So that, that, that you know, when, when the oil price goes down, they, they cancel a lot of big projects. Now they're not doing that right now, but they can if they have to. So that number is a little bit misleading is what I'm saying. Um, the number that they're budgeting for this year is somewhere in the forties. Um, and they're, they're running a budget deficit and they still are, they, and they're, but they're running a budget deficit now. I don't know how much of this you want to get into, but, um, 
they ran a budget deficit from 1980 to 2000 for 20 years. And by the time 2000 came around, they were well over 100% of uh, GDP was their debt, debt to GDP ratio. And now, um, you know, they're like 30%. When they, when they started Vision 2030, it was ridiculously low. It was like 3%. Uh, so they had almost no debt. Now they're still well within a manageable uh, range of debt. So they can borrow, they can privatize. Uh, they've created a public investment fund, which is essentially their sovereign wealth fund. They're trying to run that as a, um, people argue how well they're running it, but they're trying to run, they're trying to create a sovereign wealth fund, which allows them to diversify their sources of income. They, they, had, they had something called the PIF, the public investment fund, but it was not really a sovereign wealth fund. So now they're trying to do that. So I guess what I'm saying is they, they're trying to diversify their sources of income. They're trying to balance their budget. Uh, what do I think the price of oil is going to be? People ask me. I think it'll be 45 by the end of the year. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about uh, the impact of the pandemic and and uh, you know that's depressed? Uh, yeah, it's been very negative. I mean, it damaged depressed the, 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 the Saudis. The Saudis tried. Um, I think early on they were quite aggressive. You know, I think for them to shut down Mecca, for them to shut down the Hajj, that was a decisive action that uh, people should recognize that that was not right. easy for them to do. They've been quite draconian in the, in the way that they've shut down the uh, economy. Um, and it has damaged their economy, particularly in the hospitality sector, but also global energy prices obviously tanked um, and are still lower than they would have been had it not been for COVID. On the other hand, there are some things which are positive about COVID. Uh, COVID has forced everyone uh, in the West in particular, but the Saudis as well, um, to become more uh, digitalized more that people now use zoom more there are a lot of increases in productivity uh that happened uh and i think will become permanent both in the west and in saudi arabia and in saudi arabia in particular um people looked closely at the models that they've been using and began to try and figure out i know bus many businessmen who started uh, trimming fat and the one thing that happened in saudi arabia which is perhaps different than for us is they have been attempting to encourage foreign workers to leave. There were, when Vision 2030 began, there were about 10 million foreign workers in Saudi Arabia. Somewhere between two and three million of them have left. Uh, Saudis have been encouraged to hire and by various sanctions and uh, benefits and, and penalties to hire more Saudis. Uh, people now have fired foreign workers who they might have been keeping, but now because of COVID, they don't want them uh, because right. it's, they can't afford them. So, um, so that that's been a plus, actually. The, the more foreign workers have left. The um, uh, the the crux of my question though was was uh, still dealing with Vision Twenty Thirty, the, uh, the the hit on the energy market, and um, you know whatever disruptions there might have been in other sectors because of uh, COVID. What, what's your assessment of the impact uh, on 2030, and uh, is it on track, or um, are they uh, concerned well, that? Uh, uh, that's a good question. I, I think that you know this, the social parts of Vision 2030 are on track uh, and have gone too fast for some people, uh, and I don't and and I see no sign of them being reversed. And in fact, I see some, some signs that COVID has actually accelerated them. And I'll give you an example. Um, 
Prayer time, every stores in Saudi Arabia close five times a day for prayer. This is something of a nuisance, to be honest. I mean, it, if you want to go and pray, it's a good, good idea. But if, you can be, if you're in a store and they kick you out because it's prayer time or you go to the grocery store and you forgot it was prayer time, so you got to wait outside for 20 minutes, um, that's disruptive. Um, because people were limited in when they could go out of their houses, they began to have a much more relaxed attitude towards letting you in during prayer time and kicking you out if you were already in. And so um, that is, is being less rigorously enforced. Um, there's not any public statement, but it's just happening. And people are hoping that when the COVID is over that that doesn't actually go back. Not, now, not so. some religious policemen, they're hoping it goes back to the way it was. But um, most people I think that I've talked to are hoping that it stays that way. So, so the social changes are on track. Um, the economic changes, on the other hand, have, have, um, have been retarded. I mean, there's, there's no doubt that um, they had to, they increased the VAT from, they, first of all, they invented the VAT. There was no VAT at first, and then they increased it to 15%. They did that to help balance the budget which is damaged by the fact that the oil price went down, but clearly raising taxes at a time when you're in a recession is, is not good for overall demand. So that's slowing the economy um, dramatically. And as I say, their efforts to diversify have been hurt, particularly in tourism and transportation, uh, but also in, uh, in uh, to some extent in mining, which was another area they were trying to expand into. The global economy is, is, has brought down the price of aluminum and, and bauxite, which are the two big things they're trying to, um, uh, bauxite and aluminum. I should, I, those, that's one thing. The other thing is phosphate, bauxite okay. and phosphate. David, uh, a lot of ground to cover. Still uh, some questions coming in. We're going to talk about uh, Khashoggi and human rights. Sure. Uh, but I, I wanted to uh, uh, ask uh, about your book. You talked a lot about succession. Uh, tell us... Uh, how succession works in Saudi Arabia, how we got to where we are today in, in the uh, House of Saud and, and where you see succession going in the future. Well, succession was, is one of the pillars of stability in Saudi Arabia. Um, one of the reasons that, they, the gov that the re regime is legitimate and therefore stable is because they have had a mechanism for transferring political power smoothly and quickly uh, for the last 60 years. And they've done that really, uh, they've done it six times. Uh, they've done it when one king was incompetent. They've done it when a king was assassinated. They've done it when a king became physically incapacitated. Uh, and it worked. And it worked um, because it was a system of transferring power from one brother to another. The founder of modern Saudi Arabia had 34 sons who were living when he died. And they more or less passed, not more or less, they did, they passed power from one to the next. Um, people say that King Salman changed that system or ended that system. He didn't really end it, it ended itself. The brothers um, are mostly all dead now, and there's only one really who could still be considered active uh, other than the king. And so they faced a real problem. Uh, that is to say, how do we move from the sons of 
Ibn Saud to the grandsons. How, um, how do we, there were 34 grandsons, they all shared power. There were over 500 grandsons. They are not, they cannot all be as rich and powerful as their fathers. Some of them are gonna be pushed aside. They're, they're not gonna be happy. Uh, there's going to be a game of thrones, thrones here, which could be very destabilizing. And people who followed Saudi Arabia, like myself, were always concerned that that really was a tipping point where the thing could become unglued. King Salman was well aware of that, and he sought to engineer uh, the succession uh, while he was king. And he did that by choosing MBS, the Mohammed bin Salman. Um, who was not an obvious choice, uh, who was not the eldest grandson, who was not the most experienced grandson, who was not his, did not come from his particular branch of the family. The family has many branches. He didn't pick somebody who was only from his branch. He didn't even pick his eldest son. He picked someone who had really been very obscure, and he picked him uh, because he thought he was the guy who could do the job. Uh, and do the job required uh, certain talents, it required ambition, it required uh, certain aggressiveness, a certain ruthlessness, a certain focus. Uh, and he saw those things um, in Mohammed bin Salman and he engineered, and, it, and it's, you need to understand that the, Mohammed bin Salman did not engineer his own rise to power. His father, his father did that. Uh, and he felt he was the person that he wanted to hand the throne over to. So um, when you talk about political change in Saudi Arabia, it's almost you're trying to prove a negative. What the success of their political change is what didn't happen. What didn't happen was a volatile, as I say, Game of Thrones. I think that uh, it's now quite clear that the Mohammed bin Salman will be the next king if he is healthy at the time. Um, the problem is, and I think it is sometimes overlooked, is that the succession was a source of stability. It is still relatively a source of stability, but it is less stable now because there is nobody, it's not obvious. If something were to happen to Mohammed bin Salman, it's not obvious who would be the next person. Usually there is a king, a crown prince, and a deputy crown prince, number three man. There is no number three man now, so we don't know who the next guy would be. That is a source of potential instability. Uh, but that, I think that's probably enough to tell you about succession. Sure. Well, I'll, uh, I'll commend your book to our audience because you, you write extensively about uh, succession in the kingdom, and it's really a, an interesting uh, topic of where they've, where they've uh, come from in, in, uh, in that issue. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, international relations. Russia, China, uh, Iran, where, where do you want to start with limited time? Well, um, I think the framework for looking at the Middle East today is um, there are three competing power centers. Um, and anything you look at in the Middle East really has to be understood in terms of those three competing power centers. The Saudis are, if you will, the leader of one bloc. That is the conservative status quo Sunni bloc, which is primarily Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates. They are opposed by Iran, uh, which is the leader of, which is a revolutionary power. 
which has attempted to expand its influence throughout the Middle East, uh, which has used a sort of foreign legion of proxy fighters to destabilize a lot of countries in the Middle East, which doesn't like the status quo, uh, which doesn't think the Saudis should run Mecca, which doesn't like the United States or any Western power in the Middle East, would like to see us all leave, uh, and would like to have a more hawkish OPEC uh, and confront Saudi Arabia when it can in OPEC. So um, uh, that is to say higher prices rather than more stable prices. Uh, so that's the Iranian bloc. And then there's the, and then there's the third group, uh, which is the Islamists. Um, these are Sunnis, they're not Shia like the, like the Iranians, uh, but they're also revolutionary in the sense that they don't like the status quo. Um, and they are usually in some form or another related to the Muslim Brotherhood and Muslim Brotherhood ideologies. These are, many of them were prominent in the Arab Spring. Uh, these are, and they, and some of them are terrorists and some of them are not. Some of them are just people who want to use Islam as a means to change social or political systems. Others are, others are violent. Um, so, I mean, who are these people? They're like people, Hamas is a good example in Palestine, the AK party in Turkey, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood themselves, which were the government in Egypt, the Islam party in, um, in, uh, in Yemen. Um, so you have these different competing factions and um, much of what the Saudis are trying to do uh, relates to trying to counter the threats that they see to them. Uh, and this would be their primary threat. The primary threat that they see to them is Iran and to some extent uh, the Islamists. Uh, and that is, um, that is why, they are, why they are in Yemen. Uh, we, if you if you want, we can talk about Yemen, but uh, well, that's, that gives you the, sort of the framework of where their what their foreign policy is at the moment. And then the final thing to say about that is that they're def you asked about China and Russia, and I should have mentioned that um, they remain substantially dependent uh, on the United States for a defense relationship. Uh, on the other hand, that we are no longer the only power that is uh, important to them. They have negotiated with Russia to have a um, this OPEC plus. So OPEC and Russia now cooperate substantially on um, oil production, which is a big, big factor in, in, in their ability to um, move markets now that they have this cooperation. And with China, uh, they have a close relationship with China now. Uh, China is their biggest customer. I think they, um, yeah, China is their biggest customer and uh, for their oil. And I think that uh, it may be Russia, but Saudi Arabia and Russia are the two biggest suppliers of oil to China. Uh, they have made heavy investments in China. They have a strong bilateral relation with China. And um, something that people don't think about often is that China also has a role to play in their security. And what do I mean by that? As you probably know, um, the Iranians claiming it was the Houthis, kind of like we claimed it was the Indians who did the Boston Tea Party, um, took out half of Saudi Arabia's ability to export oil when they had a drone strike on um, the Abqaiq processing facility. 
And we told the Iranians we didn't like that. We didn't want it to happen again. There might be repercussions. There would be repercussions. We said if they did it again, and we sent Patriot missiles to protect Abqaiq, which aren't really the most efficient defense against drones. But it was a symbolic gesture of our support. Um, the Chinese have a $400 billion, very big uh, investment program that's on the table negotiating with the um, with the Iranian with the Iranians that the Chinese and the Iranians are talking about a big development project and they have a couple of refineries which are actually further along that they're actually the Iranians are getting uh, financing for these from the Chinese and the Chinese uh, got on the phone and they said you know um, maybe you didn't notice it but uh, we're big consumers of Saudi oil and we don't really appreciate uh, when half their oil is taken offline and um, if you would like us to help you finance a refinery, maybe it would be a good idea if that didn't happen again. So um, Chinese play a role in Saudi security, which um, at least in controlling Iran, which um, we may overlook sometimes. It's, so, it's, uh, um, it's a that sort of gives you the idea of the foreign policy arrangements. It's a complicated uh, neighborhood. Uh, two more uh, issues and we've got about seven minutes left, David. Um, uh, to ask you to do this briefly is unfair, but uh, that's that's where we are on time. Uh, the two issues are uh, Jamal Khashoggi and human rights as a, a connecting uh, issue. Um, what should Americans know, and, and what's what's your thoughts on the uh, culpability of uh, higher figures in the in the chain? And the, the second is the Abraham Accords that we alluded to. Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. I really should have talked about those um, sooner. Um, uh, very interesting issues. Okay, I'll be. I'll try and be very quick. Um, there is no important, more important issue to talk about tonight than the issue of Jamal Khashoggi. Um, it's something that everybody who deals with Saudi Arabia has to wrestle with, um, and it reflects an underlying and constant tension in foreign policy, and that is the tension between promoting your values and preserving your interests. Um, if you focus exclusively on one of the two, you will lose your balance. If you forget about your values, you have nothing to defend. If you forget about your interests, you have nothing to defend your values with. Uh, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi was a crime. Uh, it should be punished and it should not be repeated. On the other hand, we have an extensive series of interests with Saudi Arabia from production of stable oil supplies, to the security of Israel, to the counterterrorism efforts of ours that um, require us, encourage us to maintain a relationship with Saudi Arabia. The reforms that the Saudis, uh, I should say one other thing is that the um, alternative to the Saudi Arabia, to current Saudi government, we sometimes talk about regime change. Uh, that has not worked out terribly well in the past. And the alternative to the Saudi monarchy at the moment uh, is not a liberal secular regime. If they were replaced through elections, it would probably be something like the Muslim Brotherhood. If they were replaced by violence, it would be something like the is like ISIS or Al Qaeda. Uh, not because that those are popular, but because they are organized or violent. And neither of those groups share our values or our interests. And so it behooves us to um, focus on the future focus on what the Saudis are doing right at the moment, which is quite a bit, as I've talked about today, make sure that they understand that they need not, they shouldn't do that again, uh, that they need to be less authoritarian, 
but uh, the idea of making them a pariah stake, I think, is a, is is a, is a foolish, foolish, foolish policy. Um, do I think that the Crown Prince uh, executed Jamal Khashoggi? I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, that's what you I wanted to answer. I don't know really whether they attempted to were planning to kill him or to kidnap him. I know they kidnap people. I know people they've kidnapped. Uh, they don't usually kill people. Uh, so what they were trying to do, I don't know, and whether the Crown Prince knew about it or not, um, he certainly must have had some idea of that, that things like this were happening. Uh, whether he knew about this specific case or not, I don't know. The Abraham Accords, um, how, many, how much time do we have? Five minutes, four five, minutes? Five minutes. Um, as I said, Saudi Arabia is a status quo power. I answered some of this earlier. They want the Israeli-Arab dispute resolved. They have tried to do that really quite, I mean, they were leaders in trying to get that done in the past. Um, now- there was, the, there was the famous uh, incident, uh, Thomas Friedman visited King Abdullah and they pulled the, the peace plan out of his drawer. He did. And you know, he said, look, we're still pushing this. We would like this. Um, so they recognized that the cost benefit analysis of the, the relationship with Israel has changed. The opportunity costs of not having a relationship with Israel have increased. It now behooves them to have defense or, and I'm talking about the UAE, and, but it applies to Saudi Arabia too really, is that their ability to, to have trade, to have uh, investment, their ability to have tourism, all of these things are important economically and that some kind of a security relationship is important as well. So. The cost, opportunity cost of not dealing with the Israelis has gone up. The psychological benefit of participating in the Arab nationalist sentiment that uh, was wrapped up around the Palestinian issue has declined, and that is a generational issue. Um, you will find in Saudi Arabia, people over 60 are quite angry about the um, rapprochement with Israel. People under 30, which is over half the population, they're happy. They'd like to go to Tel Aviv. They don't see why they should continue to cut off their um, ties to Israel. So the cost benefit has shifted. The threat has shifted. Um, as I said earlier, they now see Turkey at, and, and Iran um, as a much greater threat than Israel is. Uh, they, they, and the final force factor I would say there is their relationship with the United States, which as I said, remains important. Uh, having peace with Israel, um, puts them in the good light with regard with whoever wins the relation, whoever wins the election in November. And it also gives them an, a new ally uh, for the UAE if the United States does decide to pull out of the Middle East, which I don't think it's going to do, but that is the case. So um, do I think the Saudis are going to lead the parade now? No, I do not. That's the final thing I should mention. They are the guardian, the custodian of Mecca. Uh, they are not going to get out in front of the entire Muslim world in, on this issue. They were, um, they helped to internationalize the issue, really. They were, King Faisal is the one who took the issue of Jerusalem and made it not just an Arab issue, but a pan-Islamic issue. And so they're not going to get ahead of the consensus. I think they're going to quietly work behind the scenes to encourage that consensus. And when it happens, they will um, be happy to... Uh, to, uh, they, I think they would like to, I think, resolve their issue right now, but they are constrained by their role in the Islamic world, which, as I say, if they did this precipitously, their adversaries, namely Iran and Turkey, would beat them over the head with it very, uh, very hard.
So I think that's it. David, uh, what a fantastic hour of uh, information that uh, has people understanding what's going on in Saudi Arabia. Take a look at uh, Vision or Mirage by David Rondell. Any uh, closing comments, uh, David, or are you headed back to bed now that it's no, I would just say that, you know, um, the changes, uh, my final comment would be this, that the changes that we're seeing in Saudi Arabia are at the same time both hopeful and worrying. Uh, and we need to recognize that, that they are hopeful and worrying. We need to focus on the hopeful and discourage the worrying. Uh, and that in order to do that, we need to remain engaged. Uh, that if we disengage from Saudi Arabia, the likelihood of our success in helping them evolve is reduced and negative. So uh, that would be my final closing comment. Well, thank you so much. And uh, we've had uh, some great questions from the audience and a wonderful- well, thank you. Uh, they were good questions. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. A wonderful it. review of, of your, your book here. Again, I encourage everyone to, uh, to go out and get uh, Vision or Mirage by David Rundell, uh, a terrific read. And uh, David, uh, 5 a.m. in Dubai. What, what's uh, <laughs> Time to go what's to your bed. <laughs> back to bed? Okay. Well, again, right. uh, thank you for uh, for joining us and uh, thank you for your just, good work. You bet. And just a reminder uh, to everyone watching uh, on Thursday night, election 2020, and take a look at tnwac.org/calendar. And while you're there, uh, make a gift to the World Affairs Council. That's how we keep the lights on here. And we will be back for more um, later this week. David, thanks so much. We appreciate it and uh, be safe and uh, we'll talk to you soon.